0: So great to see you guys today. I'm glad you're here for this service. I want to welcome those of you who are watching us online, real quick. I want to make sure that we all know about something that's happening tonight. We call it Ecclesia. It's just a gathering of Autumn Ridge Church at 5:30 tonight. Uh, We're going to get together, we're going to sing a few songs, but we're really going to create some time for some unhurried prayer. As a church, there are a number of things we want to pray for. I'm not giving a message, it's just the time for us to get together to do a little bit of singing and a lot of praying together. That's 5.30 tonight. It's going to be in this building right over here called the Timothy Chapel. I would love it uh, if you could be there. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Today, we're calling it Uncensored. We're talking about a, a real gospel approach to sex and sexuality. All right, so far, all services, no one's clapped and got excited that this is what we're talking about today. They're keeping the streak alive. Now, today we're talking about this. It totally makes sense. If some of you say, I feel a little uncomfortable with this, you're allowed to feel that. You're allowed to feel whatever it is that you feel today. Give yourself permission. As a matter of fact, if I say something and it offends you and makes you mad, that's okay. If there's something you really hope and I say it and I don't say it and that offends you, well, that's, that's allowed too. All right? And so this is the kind of thing that we're going to talk about. We're just going to, we're going to step into this really personal, intimate conversation. We're going to talk about something that has a tremendous power in our lives. And I think the kind thing to do is just to respect and honor each person's current of emotions that flow around a subject like this. And as we we step into this, I just want you to know that I'm totally comfortable. I feel comfortable and you should feel comfortable with whatever the responses are. And I hope you don't misinterpret my comfort with various responses as being cavalier. It is serious business to me to know that some of the things that I'm gonna say today might create turbulence for some of you. It's serious business for me to know that what I'm gonna say today might significantly contradict how some of you in this room and online have intentionally structured your lives. I don't take that lightly. And so some people might wonder, so why would you walk into this minefield? I don't think it's a shocker to hear me say, I love Jesus and I love the Bible. But I want you to know, I love you too. My wife and I, we have fallen in love with this city. I love this gathering of people. It is the thrill of a lifetime for me to be a part of this church and this city at this moment in history. I love you. And when I walk up here on this platform, it is a it's an intersection of my love for Jesus and my love for you. So it's just a little insight into what makes me tick. But every time I get up here and I preach and expressing love for Jesus and hopefully it makes it feel like I love you too, I know that it's not just an intersection of those two things. For some folks, it's a real friction point. For some folks, it's a it creates some real turbulence. And if there's anybody in here at any point today you feel uncomfortable, it might be helpful to start with these two questions What does it mean to be human? And where do sexual ethics come from? What does it mean to be human? Where do sexual ethics come from? These two questions are questions for everybody, everywhere. Whatever your cultural background is, these questions are for you. Whatever you believe or don't believe, these are for you. However you vote, however you would label yourself spiritually, these questions are for you. Now, over the years, as I've given a message like this, sometimes people just get mad at me. so what I do is I take those people out for coffee, and I don't know what that says about my intelligence, that I would serve caffeine to people who are already mad at me. (laughs) But I'll ask these two questions. What does it mean to be human? Where do sexual ethics come from? And as we sit there over our lattes and and our fraps, I I ask them that and and it's not intent, these are not gotcha questions. These are not questions intended to shut anybody down. Just the opposite. These questions are intended to make sure at the very least that our brains are keeping up with our emotions. And let me tell you what happens. Every time I ask these questions, no one has a quick and easy answer. Everybody is fumbling through their responses to these questions. And so instead of me just watching them squirm, I try to help out a little bit. With a smile on my face, I say, hey, listen, if we're all making it up what it means to be human, if we make up our own sexual ethics, then you have every right to be mad at me because I don't have any right or any authority to tell you you're wrong. But it works both ways. If we're all making it up, you don't have any right or authority to tell me I'm wrong either. So you're guilty of doing the thing that you're mad at me about. Which I know you're thinking right now, Rick, I'm never going to coffee with you, bro. That doesn't sound like fun. But since we're having an adult conversation, let me ask you this. Why do we call things that are made up? We call them pretend. And if we're making up our answers to these, they're real. Those answers are real in the sense that that's what we choose to live by. But what I want to suggest to you today is that we are kidding ourselves. And we think our answers come with the weight of truth. Or that they're meaningful simply because we like our answers. What I'm about to put on the screen, if you've been around for the past couple of weeks, it's not new to you. I want these words to be a kind of diving board for us to jump into today's subject. The Apostle Paul wrote this, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. We don't live for ourselves. We live for him who died for them and was raised again. We live for him who died for us and was raised again. What does it mean to be human? It means to know and love and reflect Jesus, the one who made us in his image. And he left no room for doubt that he loves us. Through the cross and resurrection, he made it clear. And so for those of us who know him, we are compelled by his love. Where do sexual ethics come from? They come from Jesus, the one who invented it and gave it to humanity as a good gift. Do you know what that means? It means that My sex life and my approach to sex, it's not just about what I want and what I feel is a need and my preferences and my agenda. Of course, my approach to sex and my sex life includes me, which is a weird thing to say out loud. (laughs) And it should be good. It should be healthy for me. But ultimately, it's not about me. It's about honoring Jesus. And I know a lot of people could say and do say, Rick, that's not for me. A lot of people do. A lot of church people say that's not for me. What I don't think someone could say reasonably is what I'm presenting is incoherent, that it's not rational. And for folks who are convinced, you're watching online, hopefully you're still watching online, you're convinced that you disagree with me, or you're suspicious that you might disagree with me, I got a question for you, and I ask it with love in my heart. What do you got? What are your answers to these questions? What does it mean to be human? Where do sexual ethics come from? And how do you live out your answers without stumbling into incoherence? The church, the group of Christians in the city of Corinth in the first century shared a lot in common with American culture. And they shared a lot in common with American church culture. I'm gonna keep it real with you today. They were on the struggle bus. They were a church that was hypercritical and they were hypocritical. And when it came to the subject of sexuality and following Jesus, they were a mess. And the Apostle Paul wrote this to them. He said, I have the right to do anything. He's quoting them. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never do you not know that... He who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And this word right here, it's the same word that we get glorify. It literally means glorify God with your bodies, even with your sexual choices. Bring praise to God. Worship God, even with your bodies and your sexual choices. So today I wanna start where the Apostle Paul started. He quoted their cultural mindset and then responded to it. Now, unfortunately, when you were just looking at attitudes and behaviors back then, it was impossible to tell the difference between a typical Corinthian and a typical Corinthian Christian. And their thinking that flavored their culture's attitudes about sex and sexuality, I don't think is very different from modern American culture. Here's a snapshot of Corinthian mindset. Paul wrote this, you say food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The translation is sex was reduced to an appetite. Sex was reduced to an appetite. Just go with what you want. Go with what you desire. Go with what you feel. Does that sound very different than our culture? What you feel most is what's most true about you. So live for that and everything else is secondary. No, a lot of smart folks, they wanna describe themselves as being progressive and that's fine. I just don't think we've progressed very far in the past 2,000 years. A lot of modern thinking is just old thinking and new packaging. And this very old thinking was based on this foundational assumption, life is temporary, it's all gonna end. So do whatever you want, get out of life whatever you can. And we're gonna illustrate it. We illustrate it like this. You were born... You live and you die, and that's everything. And if this is what you believe about life, it makes sense that you would live like it. Define it however you want, get out of it whatever you can. This is contrary to the message of Jesus. This is contrary to the gospel, and it's contrary to what the Corinthian Christians believed. Like us, they would say this, no, this is life. You're born, you live, you die, but you continue. Everybody lives forever somewhere. And you will either spend eternity with Jesus or eternity separated from Jesus. But their dilemma was they thought all that mattered is that you believe the right things about Jesus. It doesn't really matter how you live. It doesn't matter with what you do with your body. And this is where that attitude came from. They thought our souls go to heaven, but not our bodies. So I can do whatever I want with my body. And for what it's worth, that attitude has taken hold and is very common in modern American church culture. This is what it looks like. I love Jesus. I admire Jesus. And I say I believe all of these things and I sing songs about this. But when it comes to what I do sexually, it looks as though I believe this. So can we talk about this for a second? If this dash is all there is, and all we're doing is dashing through life, you should ignore me. You should leverage every resource that you have to get out of life, whatever you want, and define it however you want. But I owe it to you to let you know that if you do that, you have to embrace the fact that it's all meaningless. Are you ready for that? I'm gonna tell you a little something about my wife and me. We love Scandinavian crime dramas. Are my people here? Scandinavian. I see that hand in the back. We love Scandinavian political dramas. We watch them in Icelandic and Norwegian and Danish with English subtitles. Right now we're watching this show that feels like the Danish version of the West Wing. And we're following the the life of this politician and all of her highs and lows, what happens over her political career. And on a very recent episode, she just finished cancer treatment. And she was declared cancer-free, and that came at the same time that she was on the verge of phenomenal uh, political success, a major political victory. And in this episode, something happened, and she thought that cancer was back. And on the way to the doctor's office to get the results, she broke from the pressure. And in a very surreal scene that stopped being about entertainment and just kind of became about real life in the way that sometimes TV can be, She screamed, she cried, she hyperventilated and raw truth poured out of her. And I remember she said, we work so hard to do something important with our lives. We work so hard to bring some meaning to our lives, but it's all meaningless. And then the writers of the show did something that was either genius in its subtlety or foolishly unaware. The very next scene, she goes to the doctor's office She finds out that she has no cancer, that it was a mistake. And straight away, she goes to her political victory and she just celebrates and she loses all insight into whether or not life is actually meaningful or if it's meaningless. As I watched that, I thought about something that the great Russian author, Leo Tolstoy, once wrote. He said this, it is possible to live as long as life intoxicates us, but once we are sober, We cannot help seeing that it is all a delusion. There is nothing funny or witty about it all. It's only cruel and stupid. The good news of the gospel is that it's not this. It's this. This life is not all there is. But if there's something inside of you that resists this, or there's something inside of you that wants to live like this, I want to make a prediction. I think what you're going to discover is that it's going to be incredibly difficult for you to find coherent answers to these questions. Why does it mean to be human? Where do sexual ethics come from? Because if life is cruel and stupid, all the answers are cruel and stupid too. And what I hope you're able to see today is that the basis for a New Testament sexual ethic is this the basis for a gospel-defined approach to sexuality and sex is this, that this life is not all there is. And we should live this right here in light of this. That's why the apostle Paul said, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. This life is not all there is. We have to live this life in light of eternity. And in a message like this, you would expect a guy like me, a pastor, to get up and kind of list out the pros and cons of a, of a sexual uh, lifestyle that's defined by the New Testament. What are all the benefits of following a New Testament sexual ethic versus all the worst parts of living for ourselves? And I'm not suggesting that that's wrong, but it's not the Apostle Paul's approach in this passage, so it's not my approach today either. Today is not a pros and cons list of different lifestyle choices. Today is about what is the essence of life? If it's this, probably the worst decision we could make is to live for something other than ourselves. If it's this, probably the worst decision we could make is to simply live for ourselves. And so my question to you is, what is your response to Jesus? What do you believe is true about life? What and who do you live for? And into this conversation, this is what the Apostle Paul said, talking to those who said, I'm with Jesus, I'm following him. He says, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ himself? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? We are temples of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? There are some people who've been confused about that. Hopefully today we can bring some clarity. Let's start here. If you are in Christ, your body is a part of his body. If you have trusted in Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, you've given your allegiance to him, your literal physical body is a part of his metaphorical body. And by this we mean your body is a part of the church. And a better word for that is the congregation. What you do with your body matters. What you do with your body is important. And yes, it impacts you personally, but it also impacts us corporately. And you might be thinking, wait a second, how could what I do privately impact anybody other than me and my partner? That's a good question. To understand the answer to that question, we have to understand what it means to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus came on the scene, when he stepped out of heaven onto earth to be with us, to let us know that God is with us and that he loves us, There's a word used to describe him, and that word is Emmanuel. And that's not just a Christmas word. It literally means God is present with people. And before Jesus left, he said to his followers who were with him and to all of us, my spirit is coming, is gonna be with you and in you. You're gonna be the place of God's presence. And that's what the apostle Paul is talking about here. Wherever we go, we literally, we actually, we truly bring God's presence to people. So when we talk about what it means to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean, okay, it doesn't mean that we don't smoke, drink, or chew or run with girls who do. That might be good advice, but that's not what it means. It means we live our lives in light of this fact that God is with us and in us and wherever we go, we bring the presence of God. And we should live our lives as an advertisement that this life is not all there is. There is something more. And that God is with us and he has changed us. But if we end up saying we believe this and we sing songs like we believe this, but we live our lives or we live our lives sexually as though this is what life is, we are confused. And we are confusing. And we are compromising precious things that God has given to us. And anybody who watches the news, who's on social media and you know what's kind of going on in the church world, you know, you know that lately a lot of attention has been put on guys like me, church leaders who have made horrific decisions and it destroys trust. They've made horrific decisions sexually and it destroys trust and has destroyed lives, but it's not just for pastors and church leaders. It's for the whole congregation. Because when any of us say that we believe this, but we live our lives like this, it may not destroy trust, but what it does destroy is credibility. And so into this conversation, the Apostle Paul says, with urgency, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now to understand this, we should probably start with what does this term mean, sexual immorality? This passage was originally written in Greek and in Greek, sexual immorality is not two words. It's one word and that word in Greek is porneia. It's a catch-all term for sexual sin. It's the same root word for prostitute and it was commonly understood, not just in the church but in culture, it was commonly understood as meaning sexual activity outside of marriage. There are a number of other biblical passages we can turn to, but just for clarity, I want to turn to this one from Hebrews chapter 13. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. It's that same root word in Greek, porneia. And so to illustrate it, I I want to make this clear. The Apostle Paul's talking about sexual immorality. Let this circle represent everything inside of this circle is sexual activity and sexual expression that God says is good, this is great, you are within my design for this good gift for you. Everything outside of this circle is porneia. Everything outside of this circle is sexual immorality. And so instead of trying to list all the things that are outside the circle, because who's got that kind of time? What's inside the circle? What does God say is the right expression for sexual activity? One man and one woman for life. Our culture says the on-ramp for sexual activity is consent. And that is a highway for heartbreak. The gospel says the on-ramp for sexual activity is covenant. One man and one woman committed to each other for life. Let me tell you what's happening around this room right now and online. Three major things are happening. Some of you are feeling comforted because it's important to you to know that your church will teach and submit to God's word. Some of you are feeling convicted because you know that you're not following Jesus in this area of your life. And some of you, Maybe the best word to describe what you're feeling is crushed because you were hoping that I was going to get up here and talk about Christianity and a view of sexuality that's more accommodating. What I want you to hear is that when we talk about sex, we're not just talking about sex. We're talking about what is life and who and what do we live for? This is a question of will we be devoted To Jesus. And this is why our church exists, to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. What does that mean? It's three areas of life. Authority, identity, and activity. Who is in charge? What is the story that I'm telling myself about myself? And who gets to write that story? Activity. What does love require of me? And who defines what love is? Guys, if this life is all there is, and Jesus did not rise from the dead, I don't know why you would take any of this seriously. But if this life is not all there is, and Jesus did rise from the dead, what could keep you from taking this seriously? If it feels urgent, it's because it is. The Apostle Paul said, flee from sexual immorality. He says flee. Let me put this up here again. Sometimes in a message like this, people think what I'm doing, what pastors are doing is trying to draw a line and say, here are the good people and here are the bad people. If there is a line, and there probably is, we're all on the wrong side of the line. Nobody lives up to this. No one lives up to God's standard of holiness. Every single person alive is a sexual sinner. Every single person has one thing or a combination of things that's got their hooks in them and tempts them. At some point, we're all outside the circle. And becoming a follower of Jesus is saying, Jesus, I trust you and follow you, it doesn't mean the wrestling match with sin is over. It doesn't mean that temptation is totally gone. It's now we have Jesus on our side and he gives us the power to face it and to fight well. I'm reminded of something that Martin Luther wrote a long, long time ago. He said, all of life is repentance. All of life is me continually trying to turn from my way and turn to Jesus. All of life is continually saying, I'm, I'm not trusting myself. I'm changing my mind to agree with Jesus about what is best. So we take what Paul wrote seriously about flee from sexual immorality. Let's write it down like this. You can't outlast temptation, but you can outrun it. For some of you, this is what you need to hear today. Run. And whoever it is or whatever that thing is, stop hanging around. Stop toying with that thing that you're thinking about right now. Put up some distance and put up some boundaries and run. Now, in a message like this, it's pretty normal that the next day I get lots of emails and that's okay. Okay. Lots of questions are brewing, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Some of you guys know this week, uh, Pastor Otis and I and Dr. Steve Mary, we're leaving the country. we're going to Ghana on the continent of Africa, so I may not be able to respond to your emails and your questions as quickly as I'd like to. So as you're thinking about what your questions are and what you're processing right now, I just want to remind you, not all questions are created equally. Some questions are better than others. there are some questions that are understandable, but they're actually unhelpful. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is understandable, but unhelpful question. Can I blank while being a Christian? We could fill in the blank with all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff that's sin, all kinds of stuff that's not smart, all kinds of stuff that's foolish, all kinds of stuff that's unhealthy. I'm not saying this is a bad question. I'm just saying it's not helpful. And to illustrate what I mean, let me ask this. I'm gonna ask this with my wife sitting right there. Can I have an active Tinder profile while still being married? What do you say, Bay? No. No, okay. <laughs> now technically, the technical answer to that question is, well, I could do that and still be married. Do we got any helpful information? Am I going to be alive, you know, at the end of the week? Understandable question. Unhelpful. There's all kinds of sin that we can just jump into and still be followers of Jesus? Not the helpful question. There is a more helpful question. It's a hard question, but it's more helpful. Can I blink while following Jesus? If this is your question, if this is the question you're really ready to wrestle with, now you're ready to start filling in the blank. Can I sleep with my girlfriend? Jesus is not going to lead you there. What if we're engaged? Can I sleep with my fiance? Jesus is not going to lead you there. Can I watch pornography? Jesus is not going to lead you there. Can I get emotionally or even physically involved with someone else because my marriage feels dead and I've given it all I got and it's not my fault? Jesus is not going to lead you there. Can I engage in any other sexual lifestyle as long as everybody consents and no one gets hurt? Jesus is not going to lead you there. The big question today is not what are the rules? The big question today is who rules? Who do we live for? Today I want to end where the Apostle Paul ended. We're just going to quote him. And I'm asking you, if you would incline your heart and you would incline your mind to this, honor God with your body, glorify God, bring praise to him, worship him, even with your body, even with your sexual choices. I realize that if we could have an honest conversation right now some of you would say to me maybe with deep emotions and understandable intensity rick you have no idea what you are asking me to give up rick you have no idea what you're asking me to walk away from and you know what you might be right i may not know i may not understand Jesus does. And whatever you and I might lose, it's nothing compared to what Jesus lost to gain us. Whatever we might give up, it's nothing compared to what Jesus gave up to gain us. And whatever that thing is that you're thinking about right now, whatever it might offer you, it is nothing compared to to what Jesus offers you. And so as you think about how you wanna to respond to Jesus, I wanna make sure that we all remember how he responded to us. And so I'm gonna to read to you what might be the oldest song in Christian history. Philippians chapter two, verse five through 11. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.